Hello, this is Ashley Chase welcoming you to the Mark Driscoll Podcast. For more content from my dad, Pastor Mark, Senior Pastor here at the Trinity Church in Scottsdale, Arizona, visit realfaith.com, where you'll find study guides to go along with each sermon series as he preaches verse by verse through books of the Bible, daily devotions, free ebooks, and more. Now grab your Bibles and get ready for today's sermon. All righty, what book of the Bible are we in? James. James. If you didn't know that, it's over now. It's the last sermon in James. You missed your big opportunity. Last sermon in James, a great book of the Bible. And I was thinking about it. Please find your place, by the way, in James chapter five. Um, This is the 15th book of the Bible that we will have studied together here at Trinity Church in our five years together. Amen? That's pretty exciting stuff. And so generally we like to go through books of the Bible. We've done now 15 books of the Bible once we finish James today. We've also done like Spirit-Filled Jesus, Pray Like Jesus, Spiritual Gifts, uh, Spiritual Warfare with the Win-Year War, lots and lots of Bible teaching. What I like to do is I like to set the preaching schedule about a year in advance. And some people ask, well, how are you going to make it relevant to deal with what's going on in the world? Here's what I believe. I believe that the word is over the world and that it is timeless, so it's always timely. And every time we open the Bible, we realize that we don't make it relevant, we show its relevance. God's already made the Bible relevant. And today we find ourselves in James, and it's really a perfectly timed message as we head into the holiday season, and that is how does faith work when you do ministry? And it's written by James, who is Jesus Christ's kid brother. And this family, is the most significant, incredible family in the history of the world. Every Christmas, we remind ourselves of mom and dad. Who's that? Who is James and Jesus' mom and dad? Mary and Joseph. They had Jesus. If you only had one kid, that's, what a great kid. Good job, mom and dad. And then they have another kid named James who writes a book of the Bible about his big brother. If you turn the page, you're gonna meet another guy named Jude who wrote another book of the Bible, one of their kids. How many of you, if, if you were Jesus' parents and two of your kids were in the Bible, you'd put that on social media. Like, yeah, we're, we're teaching a parenting class. And, uh, and then they have a, another son named Simon. And when James, who we're gonna learn from today dies, there's a leadership vacuum and he fills it as a leader. So we know at the very least, we had Mary and Joseph, great parents, Jesus, our God and Savior, two brothers who wrote books of the Bible, and another brother who fills a leadership gap, in addition to what the sisters did and what other brothers he may have had did. This is an incredible family. And for those of you who are parents, just think of this. Here's what makes a great family. Number one, you need to have Jesus in your family. And he's already told us repeatedly that we can be brothers if we have Jesus in our family. Second thing is, every member of the family is filled with the Holy Spirit. And thirdly, they have parents who lead the family and love the children. Uh, James and his brother Jude and their big brother Jesus didn't make it to Bible college or seminary. There's nothing wrong with those things. I've got a master's degree in theology. I'm not opposed to it. But here's the big idea. Two parents can change the world if they raise their kids to love and serve Jesus Christ. You don't need a lot of money. They didn't have a lot of money. You don't need a lot of resources. They didn't have a lot of resources. You don't even need a lot of education. They didn't have a lot of education. All of that can be helpful. But if you have Jesus, the Holy Spirit, and some godly parents, your life can change. And thousands of years later, your ministry can continue. And so where we're studying James today, he knows that eventually his life is going to come to an end but the ministry of his brother, Jesus Christ, needs to continue. So he's going to give us the last word, which is a commissioning for all of us into ministry. When we give someone the last word, and today we're giving James the last word, it's how we honor them. And if you're married, it's how you stay married. You allow someone else to get the last word. Amen? Husbands, write this down. This is a little pro tip right here. Just be quiet. Okay, let her get the last word. We're gonna let James get the last word. And usually the last word is reserved for a commissioning and a launching into the next season. So when you graduate from high school or college, somebody gets up and they pronounce you now a graduate and they commission you into your next season of life. When you're married, at the end of the ceremony, the pastor gets up, 
pronounces you husband and wife, gets the last word and then commissions you into your married life. When you have a child and you're ready to leave the hospital, uh, a nurse or a doctor comes in and they commission you with some final instructions on what to do for the next 18 years. It's a lot of pressure. And then also too, when you are on your deathbed, pastor, ministry leader comes in and they commission you into your eternal life. They tell you what comes next. These are James' final words, and it's a commissioning into ministry for all of you. He's no longer here, his words are, and he trusts you and I to carry forth the ministry of his big brother. So he's going to look at seven different kinds of people or seasons of life that all people endure. And the key is first and foremost, okay, does this speak to the season that I'm in? And if not me, who do I know that this applies to so I could minister to them. So the first category is in James 5.13, he asks this question, who is suffering? So my question to you is, is that you? Financial, emotional, spiritual, relational suffering. It's a hard season for you. You feel like you're going into a headwind, not a tailwind. It's a tough season for you. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. The point is this, we all need to pray, but when there's more suffering, there needs to be more praying. Now, when there's more suffering, there could be more complaining or more fighting or more self-medicating. And instead there needs to be more praying. And uh, I wrote a book with uh, my oldest daughter, our oldest daughter, Ashley called uh, Pray Like Jesus. Let me just give you a little summary of it. But if you wanna learn more about prayer, the whole series is at realfaith.com. But the big idea is this, don't focus on learning to pray, focus on getting to know God as Father, because once you know who your Father is, you'll talk to Him and you'll listen to Him. And that's what prayer is. Prayer is talking to your Father and listening. And so in the Old Testament, about 15 times, God is referred to as Father, but it's almost always national, not individual, and it's rather impersonal. Everything changes in the history of the world, our understanding of God and our prayer life when Jesus Christ steps foot on planet Earth. 65 times in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, three biographical sketches that we call gospels regarding his life. 65 times in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus calls God Father. 100 times in John, he refers to God as Father. It's his favorite title or name or designation for God. When Jesus tells us something 165 times, it must be very important. And they come to Jesus and they ask him, teach us how to pray. And he says, okay, here's how you pray. When you pray, pray like this, our Father. There's no indication that any major religious leader in the history of the world up until that point prayed to or taught his followers to pray to God as Father. The Jewish people hadn't prayed to God as Father, but everything changes when the Son of God teaches us to pray. And the point is this, if you wanna learn how to pray, don't look at religious people, look at dads who love their kids and look at how those kids react to their dads. I'll give you guys an encouraging story. Um, there was recently a single mom, first time visitor to our church and I was visiting with her and I said, how was it? She's a single mom, she's got a couple kids, I think it was boys. So when I first showed up, she said, there's a lot of trucks, a lot more trucks than I'm used to at church, a lot of diesel. <laughs> she said, then I came in, there was a lot of beards, there's a lot of tattoos, a lot of boots. These are our love languages. And she said, at first I thought, oh, this is kind of awkward. I'm not used to this many men in church. And she said, then I noticed they're all holding babies and playing with kids and putting them in a bouncy house and serving in the nursery and kids are running up and they're all dads. She said, these are the toughest dads I've ever seen. I said, then we've reached our goal, right? We want every kid to have a dad who's tough for them and tender with them is going to protect them and bless them. That's absolutely the father heart of God. She said, and at that moment, I knew I was in the right place because now my sons get to see healthy men. And she said, it really meant a lot to me to see how much these kids love their dads and how available these dads were to their kids. Once a kid knows that they have a dad who loves them and is there for them, immediately they start asking for things and they never stop. Mine are in their 20s, we're still going. <laughs> God's your father. His heart toward you is a father's heart. He cares about you. He'll be tough for you and tender with you. He'll protect you and bless you. And prayer is simply this, talking to him 
and then listening to him. And Jesus says, when you're suffering, it's a good time to be praying. And a couple of things about prayer. Number one, God does not need you to pray. You need you to pray. This confused me as a new Christian. I was like, why does God need me to pray? God doesn't need me to pray. I need me to pray. Right? God is perfect. I'm not. I'm not gonna know what to do unless I talk to him about it and then obey what he says. Some people be like, well, why does God need prayer? He doesn't, you do. Number two, when it comes to prayer, particularly when you are suffering, um, prayer transfers burdens you can't carry to a God who can. There are things in life, especially when you're suffering, you're anxious, you're fearful, you're overwhelmed, you're uncertain, you're burdened. There are certain burdens that will crush you. And so he needs to carry you as you carry them. Jesus says, come to me, all you are weary and heavy laden and burdened. My yoke is easy, my burden is light. What he's saying is, I'm gonna help. And what we do in prayer, there are things in life, friend, you can't handle it. It's too big for you, it's too much. And your father knows that. When my kids were little, they would do one of two things when there was something too big for them to carry. Let's say we were traveling and they had their luggage or maybe we're going to a baseball game and it's a long hike out to the field and they've got their, you know, their bat bag or whatever the case may be. Sometimes the kids would say, dad, can you carry this? Answer, I'll carry that, I'm your dad. Other times they would ask, dad, can you carry me? Yes. You put the bag on and I'll put you and the bag on. I'll be your Sherpa and I'll carry everything. <laughs> there are times you just need to say, Father, Dad. And this word Abba, Father, it means literally Father. It's not Daddy. That's the language that little kids use. This is language that adult and grown kids would use. But it's literally like, hey, Dad, Father, I'm suffering. And I need you to either carry the load with me, carry the load for me, or it's so big, I need you to carry me and the load. And it's inviting the Father in. And I want you to know that this is not something that you have to do, it's something you get to do. When it comes to prayer, oftentimes we don't look at children with their father, we look at religious people who put on public demonstrations, and that's not what prayer is really like or about. So let me give you two things in my prayer life that are helpful. Number one, when I, am suffering or I need to surrender or I need to obey, I literally kneel down in prayer. It's my way of my body telling my soul that we are under authority and that we are in submission. And there are times I'm like, God, I am struggling here. I, I need you to help me and pick me up. Or God, I'm struggling with obedience and I just need to obey. You need to know before I preach, every time I get down on my knees and I pray for me and I pray for you. And I'm asking him to help me to serve you. And I, I, I oftentimes kneel in prayer. And sometimes this is just significant. It's just a way of saying, I'm not in authority and I'm not in control, but I'm under authority of the one who is in control. The other thing I like to do is I like to prayer hike or prayer walk. I'm not the guy who is going to get a mat, face east, sit in the lotus position, drink decaf and pretend. I, I, I'm, not, I'm not that flexible. I don't have a rug and I hate decaf. So none of that's for me. What I like to do is I like to go for hikes and walks and talk to the Lord. As my body is moving and I'm verbal processing, and part of prayer for me is verbal processing. How many of you are like me, you're verbal processors? I've spun this into a career, so I'm a verbal processor. And sometimes if I talk to people, it's too early or it's too much, but it's always good to talk to God before you talk to anyone else. So I like to go for walks. In our neighborhood, there are certain walks I like to take. One of my favorite things is to hold Grace's hand um, and just walk and talk and pray. Honey, what do you got going on? Okay, let me pray for that and I'll pray for her. And, She'll, okay, honey, what do you got going? And I'll tell her and she'll pray for me. We just hold hands and walk and talk. It's one of my favorite things. Sometimes I'll go for a walk by myself and I'll just talk to the Lord. If it's in the neighborhood, I put earbuds in and I pretend like I'm on a call. So I don't look crazy. <laughs> like there's that guy again, walking around the neighborhood, talking to himself. Oh, he's in the spirit, it's fine. No, I can put the earbuds in. My favorite thing to do is prayer hike up in the mountains. I love being outside in God's creation and just talking to the Lord. So I made a covenant with the Lord and we started James. 
um, that I would go on a prayer hike and I would set a meeting with the Lord every week. And I would go up to the mountains and I would hike into a destination. On the way there, all I would pray is thankful prayers. Just things I'm thankful for to remind me of the goodness of God in my life. And then on the way out, my burdens and frustrations and struggles and needs. What I found was I need that more than I thought that I did. It's amazing. It's like you're dehydrated and you don't know it. And then you hydrate. You're like, oh, I feel so much better. Or you've not been sleeping well and you get a good couple nights sleep and you're like, oh my gosh, I didn't know how worn out I was. My soul was dehydrated and worn out. And as I went on those prayer hikes with the Lord, and I'm out in the woods just talking to the Lord and singing to the Lord too, by the way, um, my soul was really unburdened and healed and things didn't change, but I did. So it got to the point recently where now I'm doing a prayer hike two or three days a week in the, in the mountains. And, I, and I'm wondering, why have I not been doing this my whole life? My soul needs it. And as you're suffering, it's a good time to be praying. And here's the good news. You're not an orphan, you're a son or daughter. You're not alone, you've got a father. He's listening, he's available, he hears and he cares. And if he's there, you may as well invite him in. So the first is, is any of you suffering, praying? And what he's gonna say in six of the seven, he's gonna tell us to pray. One, he's gonna tell us to sing, which is another way of praying. So here's the next one. Who is cheerful? How many of you are like, you know what? I'm having a good day. I'm still filled with turkey, pumpkin pie, the Holy Spirit, and my relatives left. I'm cheerful. I'm doing great, okay? How many of you, honestly, sometimes you come to church, it's like, let's talk about your problems. You're like, actually, God fixed them. I'm in a pretty good mood. Some of you, you're, you got engaged. Congratulations. Some of you just had a baby. Some of you, the holidays were great. Some of you, you got a promotion. Some of you, you just got saved. I mean, some of you, you're having a really good day. So we need to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Here it's about rejoicing with those who rejoice. Is anyone cheerful? James 5.13. Let him what? Sing praise to God. Thank God for the things that make you cheerful. And so what he's talking about here is there are gonna be some bad days and there's gonna be some good days. And on the good days, those are good days to sing, sing. So this is worshiping. So let me talk about this. Um, when we get together, we do something that most people don't do and that's sing together in public, wow. okay? And you need to know that later on the band will come out, but you are in the band. You are not the audience, you are the band, God is the audience. Now we're not gonna give you a mic, okay? Cause you're not, you're not ready, okay? Uh, and we're not ready, but you are part of the band. And your job is not to observe the band, but to join the band, okay? Now that being said, let me tell you a few things about singing. Number one, singing is a way of praying. You pray, but when we sing, we're praying together. We're putting our voices together as a demonstration of unity, and we are rejoicing in the goodness of God and the ways that shows up in our life. So singing is a way of praying. In addition, number two, singing is a way of emotionally healing and maturing. By singing and worshiping, that's how we become more emotional and relational. So let me speak specifically to the men. Most men are not very emotional and not very relational. They have an emotional spectrum of grumpy and asleep. Those are your options. <laughs> and oftentimes in church, it's like, well, the men won't sing. Well, that's because the men are not that emotional or relational. The way that a man grows to be emotionally, relationally healthy starts by his relationship with the father. I'm gonna to sing to him, I'm gonna rejoice in him, I'm gonna to talk to him. What that'll do, that'll open up my relationship with the Father, that'll open up my emotions from the Father. And if I can be emotional and relational with him, I can be emotional and relational with others. Most men are emotionally, relationally constipated. I can tell in worship, I'll tell you. Here's what happens, here's how most men worship. Not a lot of life, okay? Not a lot of life. And most men don't know how to sing and worship. So I just encourage you men, just get started. 
it's, it's just like exercise for the body. This is exercising the soul. And, and you and I need to worship because our body needs food and it needs water, but our soul needs worship. And it's singing. And I hear guys all the time, they're like, well, I sing in my heart. No, you don't. <laughs> Some guys are like, I don't know how to do it. Yes, you do. I've seen you at a college game day. You sing the fight song. And when the dead pig goes over the chalk line by the guy wearing the same color jersey as you, you're very Pentecostal. You can do this. You've done this before. Okay. And, and, and the point is simply this. Um, one of the most important things that we can do, especially as men, is to set an environment of prayer and worship. Because the reason for most men, I'm just verbal process, I'm just thinking about this. So let me just share a little bit from the heart for the men. Because I think if you can get the men to worship, you can unlock the whole family. Usually it's the women who go to church, read their Bible, pray and sing, and wish their husbands did. And so ultimately, many of the men who struggle with prayer and singing and worship, it's because to them, it's weird. They've never seen it. And let me just say, then you didn't grow up in a healthy home. Children grow up in a home and they think that the environment that they grew up in is normative. So it's normal for them. If you grew up in a home where you're like, well, we pray for each other and we sing to the Lord. That seems normal to me. Then your kids may have a lot easier time praying and singing than you did because they're seeing it modeled by their parents, starting with their dad. And one of my favorite things to do, in addition to holding Grace's hand and going for walks, I like to hold hands and worship together. I love that. And it's my way of saying we're one, we worship one God, we're under one authority, and Satan and demons just need to take a look that we're together in the presence of God. And it's a declaration. And so, when we sing, and after we finish the sermon, if we finish the sermon, <laughs> we'll bring the band out and sing. And, and if you wanna come forward and kneel, kneel. If you wanna raise your hands, raise your hands. If you wanna turn around and put your face into the seat and just be in the presence of God and talk to him, feel free. If you wanna clap, you wanna cheer, that's fine. And, uh, and if you don't know what team you're on, there are different teams for worship. I'll just tell you what team you're on. So if you worship like this, you're a Presbyterian. <laughs> Okay. If you worship like this, you're a Baptist. If you worship like this, you're charismatic. If you worship like this, you're Pentecostal, okay? Now, uh, the goal is to get you all here, okay? You did it when you were arrested, so I know you can do it. I know you can do it. You can do this, okay? It's so grumpy in the third row, okay? All right, another thing when it comes to singing, singing is a way of celebrating. Every time there's a party, there has to be a band. Wedding reception, band or DJ, right? New Year's Eve, band or DJ. The kingdom of God is a party. Religious people don't get this. But the, the illustrations and the parables for the kingdom of God, they tend to be about parties and celebrations. And God tends to show up at holidays, feasts, and festivals. So when we get together, we plug the band in and we throw a party. And what we are doing, we are singing praise to God for his provision in anticipation of what he will provide. And so part of it is a party. And this is why we throw parties. Some people have asked, well, why so much in the budget for fun? Well, the kingdom of God is a fun party. And we throw parties to practice for that kingdom. And the reason we throw parties for kids, we want your kids to go like, oh, God's awesome, church is fun, forever is a party, amen. You know, and, and also too, we wanna to invite people into an atmosphere. It's like, well, those people are joyful and cheerful and they're singing and they're praying and they're holding hands and they seem pretty happy and they live on the same planet as we do. Why don't they have misery like us? Well, maybe because they have a relationship with God that overcomes the problems in their world. And then lastly, when it comes to singing, singing is a way of processing after the sermon. We tend to put most of the singing after the sermon for this reason, you need to process it. You need to talk to God, you need to meet with God. Jesus says, feed my sheep. So my job is to feed you the word of God, but you've got to chew and digest it. Right? I, if I cook the meal, you've got to eat it, chew it, digest it to get the most nutrition out of it. 
So what we do after the sermon, we have an unusual service order compared to some churches. We have a lot of time after the sermon for singing and praying. So we're gonna have the prayer team in the back. You need prayer for anyone or anything? Just go get prayed for and sing. And all of this is gonna culminate, we're gonna pivot from this section starting next week for a holiday sermon series. And then we'll jump into the book of Genesis in January. But we're gonna do a holiday sermon series, uh, Worship the King. And we're gonna just look at singing and worship and what that is and how we are to worship our God. And we're going to uh, change the service order a little bit. We're going to add communion back every single week. That'd be awesome. And we're going to have the prayer team available every service during the back half of worship. We're also going to take a special year-end offering. We're praying for 500,000 over general giving so that we can expand the worship department to help us to sing. That'll include a new soundboard so we get more musicians and instruments on the stage, we're maxed out. That'll include some more cameras and some more gear to record worship videos to distribute online. As this year through Real Faith from Trinity Church will reach over 100 million people. Uh, in yeah, I'm excited about that. And, and then we're under contract to buy a worship studio. We bought a studio last year that has completely filled up and is being used for video. There's one next door that we're under contract for, and that'll allow us to do audio recording, uh, songwriting, uh, band practice, and a place for the creatives to help us sing unto the Lord. And so this is all the plan for the month of December, culminating with the big Christmas parties on the 23rd and 24th, and our whole goal is to really continue to gain momentum as we sing praise to the Lord, that we obey this text wholeheartedly. The next category is this, who is sick? Who is sick? How many of you right now, you woke up with chronic pain, you're on medication, you're in physical therapy, you're looking at surgery, you've been hospitalized, you're just sort of winding down with your life energy and or you know someone who is. Here's what he has to say. James 5, 14 and 15, is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders, godly older saints in the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith, praying in faith that God can and does hear prayer and can and will heal some, will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. So we live in a broken fallen world. And how do we know that? There's sickness. True or false, this last year or two, the whole world is just trying to end sickness. It's overwhelming. Jesus Christ is God. He comes to the earth as the great physician. And what we read is that 27 times he healed individual people, which is amazing. 10 times he healed entire groups of people. In addition, it says that he healed other people, but it's not recorded. So that's not the total number. Then Jesus dies for our sin and he rises from death and he conquers Satan's sin, death, hell, the wrath of God. And then he ascends back into heaven. And the question is, if Jesus is up there, is there still the potential of healing down here? That's the question. Because he's the healer. Can he heal from up there? What happens then is the book of Acts picks up the story and it says that the Holy Spirit came down on the believers, the early church. And it is written by Luke, who is a medical doctor, which means that when he tells us that people were healed, it comes with a doctor's authentication. What we find is 12 of the 28 chapters of the book of Acts show that God still heals. And so the good news is that Jesus continues to heal. Now there are two errors that happen. Some say, well, God used to heal, but he doesn't do that anymore. That's not true because God's the same yesterday, today, and forever. I, the Lord God, do not change. Right? That God still can and does heal. And then the other error is that God must heal you if you do something to make him. You can't make God do anything. One of the perks of being God is you're free to do what you want. But some will say, if you have enough faith, you can make God heal you. Ergo, if you're not healed, it's because you didn't have enough faith. And to me, that's abusive, that's mean. Because there are people in the Bible who are healed that have no demonstration of any faith. 
And there are some, it says they had great faith. So God is very free. So between these polarities of God no longer heals or God must heal, we say God can heal. So let's ask and see. Let's ask and see. How many of you would testify by raising a hand that God has healed you? You've experienced a physical healing in your life, okay? For those of you that are suspicious, there's just testimonies all over the room. This is my story. My mom was healed, physically healed by Jesus Christ. And this is where faith entered our family. Now, when it comes to healing, what he says is, when we're suffering, we can pray for ourselves. And of course, it's fine to invite others in to pray. But when we're sick, that is particularly a time to invite others in to join us in prayer. And what he says is this, to anoint that person with oil and pray for them. This anointing of oil is unusual. Jesus never did it, at least not as recorded in scripture. Only one time in Mark 6 did the disciples anoint anyone with oil. But what it shows here is that God works through the natural and the supernatural. He works through the, me uh, the medical and he works through the miracle. That's how God works. In their day, they lived a sort of a more healthy lifestyle and it would include olive oil for treating of wounds, for maintaining of skin, for cooking of food. It was a staple, olive oil was of a healthy diet. And so part of, I think, what he's getting after here is that we need to minister to the physical and the spiritual, the body and the soul. That olive oil for them was one of the staples in a healthy lifestyle and diet. So for me, I grew up, I did not pay any attention to food and nutrition. I get married to Grace, she's into vegetables and vitamins and crazy stuff I've never even heard of. She's very healthy, I'm very sick. I'm very sick. And I realize that I am killing myself with my dietary choices. And Grace had this crazy idea that God made the body and God made the world, so we put nutrients in the world to nourish the body. Crazy idea. <laughs> so I had to relearn healthy lifestyle. And for them, olive oil would denote a healthy lifestyle. In addition, there are times when natural medicine or medical intervention cannot solve the problem. Again, the Bible is not against medicine, but sometimes there are things that the great physician can do that the physicians can't do. That your only hope is a healing. And what he says is to anoint with oil. And the anointing there is to remind us of the Holy Spirit. That the anointing of the Holy Spirit is the power of God at work in and through the body and the life of the believer that God can and does heal. Now, let me say this. Um, what happens when you're praying for the sick? Number one, it allows you to deal with reality. Some people, they feel awkward when you're sick or you're suffering or struggling and they don't know what to say. So they say something, but it's not helpful. Oh, you're gonna be fine. No, actually, I, I'm going in for surgery. You know, like, uh, you know, God's got a plan. I, I look, I, I, I'm in physical therapy and I'm struggling. Like sometimes we, we're, we're not dealing with reality. And what, what this allows us to do is to deal with reality and say, okay, here's really where you're at and then empathize, I'm so sorry. And then to do something by praying for them and asking God to heal them. So God can heal them, but we can make sure that they're not alone. And I'll never forget, um, we have five kids, somebody's missing. Grace had a miscarriage some years ago. And as Grace started to miscarry, I was just laying hands and praying over her. And I was praying over her womb. God, please spare the life of this unborn child. This is a kid that we love. We have not had the opportunity to meet yet, but you know them and we're looking forward to knowing them. I prayed and Grace lost the baby. And my kids came to me and they said, uh, Daddy, how come God didn't hear our prayer? I said, he did hear our prayer. Daddy, how come God didn't answer our prayer? He will answer our prayer. The baby is healed right now. And I firmly believe this, that there will be a family reunion and the five will be six. And I do know this, the question is not, does God heal his people? The question is, when does God heal his people? 
Some of you will get healing in this life. All of us who belong to the Lord Jesus will get healing in the eternal life. So I love you medical doctors. I love you physical therapists. I love you first responders. And I'm just telling you, there's a day you're gonna find a new job. Maybe it's throwing parties for all the people you used to take care of, okay? And I'm just telling you that there is coming a day. No masks. No, no vaccines. When you're in heaven, you're like, where do I get my vaccine? Ah, oh, you'll be fine. What about the booster? No. What, what, oh, won't that be great? Is any of you sick? Have people lay hands and pray over you and anoint you with oil. We'll do that after the sermon during the singing. You can go to the back. And we're gonna be doing that every service. We're always here. If you need to be prayed for, we're so honored to pray for you. And let me tell you, there's not a lot of places you can go anymore to be publicly prayed for. You go to Home Depot, you're like, I'd like a tub and prayer. You're like, we can do the tub, you know? Go to Red Robin, you're like, I'll take that stack of onion rings and prayer. They're like, uh, onion rings we got. You know what I mean? This, if, if you can't get prayed for in church, where are you gonna get prayed for? We love you. We'd love to pray for you. Is any of you sick? Anoint them with oil and pray for them. A couple other things he has to say. Who is sinning? <laughs> Answer, everyone. Okay, so if you've not found a cat, you're like, I haven't found my category. Bazinga, okay, here we go. <laughs> found your category. James 5, 15 and 16. If he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Only Jesus Christ can forgive sin. Only Jesus Christ can forgive sin. Therefore, confess your sins to one another. That's agreeing with God, I was wrong. And pray for one another that you may be healed. That little line there, pray for one another, that's a phraseology that appears 56 times in the New Testament. Christianity is about one another, praying for one another, forgiving one another, loving one another, serving one another. Friends, we need one another. Who is sinning? And the point is simply this, we all sin. We don't wanna have a religious environment, we don't have a relational environment. We don't wanna beat you down because of what you did, we wanna build you up so you can stop doing it. We don't wanna just pour guilt on you, we wanna pour grace on you. Right? Jesus died for all of us. We all have some secret struggles, we all have some sin. And we all have some seasons where we're not the best version of ourselves. So we can just be honest. And what he says is just confess to one another. And he says that it could produce healing. So now generally speaking, the reason that there is sickness and suffering in the world is because of sin. The curses come and everything is flawed and broken until the king returns and the curse is lifted. We're living in a cursed and fallen world. Sometimes there is not a direct causation or correlation between our sin and our suffering. It's just a mystery. In the previous section, he talked about a guy named Job. We looked at Job. Job was a righteous, blameless, godly, good guy. Not perfect, but he, he was a godly man. And his whole life just got attacked. And he didn't know why. And we know that it was spiritual warfare that Satan was attacking him. And so Job's suffering was not caused by his sinning. So oftentimes, or sometimes, suffering is not caused by sinning, but sometimes it is. Sometimes the decisions we make create the pain that we feel. Uh, let me prove it to you physically. So sinning is disobeying, disregarding the word of God. God says no, you say yes. God says yes, you say no. If you disobey the Bible, will you abuse and break your body? Yeah. It says, don't get drunk. If you drink all the time, you're gonna break your body. You're gonna cause your own suffering. The Bible says not to be a glutton. If you do not manage your intake of healthy, nutritious food, eventually you're gonna have some medical problems. If you don't obey the Bible's command to practice chastity before marriage and fidelity within marriage, you could end up with all kinds of physical problems. 
that sometimes our sinning causes our suffering physically. The same is true emotionally and spiritually. If you are a Christian and you sin, how do you feel emotionally? Just sick to your soul. It's like, why did I do that? I used to love that, now I hate that, but the Holy Spirit has changed my desires. And that's not who God made me to be, and I'm not gonna be doing that in heaven. Why am I doing that now? I hate it when I do that. I'm so sick of it. A sinning Christian is a miserable Christian. And then all of a sudden, not only is it mental and emotional, it's also spiritual. God feels far away and, and you feel like you've run away from God. That relationship feels distant and you miss him. In addition, sinning can cause spiritual suffering because sometimes attached to the sin are demonic forces that we're inviting into our life. This is true, I'll give you one major example I've seen in 25 years as a senior pastor, bitterness. You're like, I'm not going to forgive them. You're going to invite demonic torment into your life because heaven is about forgiveness, hell is about bitterness. And what happens if you choose bitterness, people who are bitter statistically, heart disease, migraines, ulcers, lots of physical problems. The point is this, when we, we hear God say no, what we think is he's trying to restrict our freedom. No, he's trying to preserve our living. When you sin, you hurt yourself and God loves you and he doesn't want you to cause self-harm. And sometimes we're suffering in life and we're like, God, I don't know what is happening. And other times you're like, I know exactly what's happening. What I am doing is attacking myself and hurting myself and breaking myself. And what he says is, if that's you, invite some other people in, confess your sins to one another. What this is, is taking what's in the darkness and bringing it into the light. And he said, and confessing is simply agreeing with God. You know what? God says it's bad for me. I agree, it's bad for me. And then it's choosing who you're going to invite in. Confess your sins to one another. And what that is, is that's choosing who your wise counsel is. You need to decide who you're going to invite in. You need to decide who you're gonna confide in. Is this an accountability partner? You're like, hey, let me just raise my hand and be honest here, I'm struggling. The question is not, are you a sinner? The question is, are you an honest or dishonest sinner? Okay? And in a religious environment, the last thing you do is raise your hands and say, I'm a sinner, because then everyone else is going to judge you. That's not who we want to be. We wanna be helpful, not harmful. We wanna be part of the deliverance, not part of the judgment. And this might be choosing an accountability part. Say, so, you know what, let me just be honest with you. I'm really struggling with this and I need you to check in on me because by myself, I get myself in trouble. This may be seeking out a mentor, or wise counsel saying, hey, I'm struggling with this. Could I talk to you? Could you give me some advice? I'll submit to authority. I'm just trying to figure out how to get free of this. This may even be finding a Christian counselor and saying, I just need help. I'm not doing so good. And, and it, it shouldn't continue. And it's inviting them in. Um, let me just share my heart with you. I love you. That's why I'm here every week. And Satan has lied to many of you. And he's told you, um, this can't change. Yes, it can. Some of you have been told, um, you just need to learn to live with it. No, you don't. Some of you have been told, we just need to manage it. No, you need to crucify it and bury it because Jesus was crucified and buried for it. So may as well crucify it and bury it with him and not take it up again. And some of you have been like, what? If, I, if I'm honest with somebody, they're gonna be ashamed of me. No, they're gonna be loved by you because you're inviting them in. The only way to really build intimacy is around honesty. 
And if people don't know who you are, they can't really love you. Now, you need to be careful with who you let in. You've got to find people that are safe and godly, people that are for you, not against you, people who are there to help and not hurt, people who can hold a confidence but not, but not enable a sick lifestyle. God has better for you. God has freedom for you. God has good for you. Okay? And so what he's saying is just be honest with God and find somebody to invite in to walk with you in freedom. Hmm. I should just pray for you right there and then I'll hit the next one. Father God, there's just a heavy moment in the room. And so Lord, uh, we confess our sins. We all say that we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Hey God, we've all got our struggles. For some it's porn, it's alcohol, it's adultery, it's fornication, it's anger, it's gambling, it's overspending, it's overeating, it's drunkenness, it's carousing, it's fighting. And for some of us, it's just smug, self-righteous, judgmental, religious pride, because we don't struggle with those things. And so Lord, I just ask in the strong name of Jesus that we would, we would be willing to humble ourselves because you oppose the proud and you give grace to the humble. That we'd be humble enough to confess, which is just to agree with you. And that God, we... We think of James 1.5, where it says, if we lack wisdom to ask for it, that you'll give it in abundance without finding fault. We ask for wisdom, Lord, on who should we talk to and what process should we take and how can we live in freedom? And we invite the Holy Spirit to forgive us of sin, to cleanse us of unrighteousness, to lead us and guide us into the life that Jesus intends for us, and also to surround us with the people who can be friends and confidants for the journey home. And Lord, I pray for these dear people that they would live in the fullness of freedom for which Jesus Christ died and for which Jesus Christ lives in Jesus' good name, amen. amen. All right, here's the next category. Is any of you weary? Who is weary? Anybody there? All right, here's what we're gonna do. We're, gonna, we're just all gonna take a deep breath as our memorial to the last 18 months. One, two, three. Oh, the last 18 months have been a long hundred years. It's been exhausting, right? How many of you, you're just tired, right? I mean, the problem is they keep moving the finish line. 14 days to slow the curve, 14 months to slow the curve, 14 years to slow the curve, hey! <laughs> The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it's working, James 5, 16. What happens is you and I are finite, we're human. What that means is we're limited and dependent. We just reach the end of our life energy. You're like, I'm not depressed, I'm just worn out. I, 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 it's not that I don't love the Lord, it's just that I can't get out of bed in the morning. Emotionally, I'm just, I can't forgive them. I can't do that. I can't go anymore, okay? One thing I would say is first and foremost, live within the rhythms that God intends for you, okay? God says, work six days, take a day off. You know why? You need it. You're human. I lived under this illusion and myth that it, once I got all my work done, I could rest. And 20 years later, I was still working. Blow out my adrenal glands twice and intestinal ulcer twice. Uh, you know, I, I, when you break the Sabbath, you break yourself. Okay? So live within the rhythms that God gives you. Jesus took a day off. He has stuff to do. And he took naps. Right? Most people, when they study the life of Christ, they don't have a whole chapter on his naps, but they should. <laughs> What would Jesus do? He'd get a hammock for Christmas and wear it out. That's what he'd do. So live within the limits that God intends for you, but then you will reach points in your life where it's just like, I don't have the energy or the power to live the life that God intends for me. And this is where 
it is impossible to live the life that God intends for you without the power of the Holy Spirit. And it's impossible to even be emotionally healthy without the Holy Spirit. Here, he says, is any of you weary? The prayer of a righteous person has great power at his working. What he says is praying for power. Power and the Holy Spirit are synonymous throughout the New Testament. When it says power, it means Holy Spirit because he is the power source. Jesus told us this in Acts chapter one before he returned to heaven. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes. The Holy Spirit is the power source for your soul. God doesn't intend or expect for you to live your life by your power, only by his power. Wrote a whole book on this called Spirit-Filled Jesus, but Jesus was filled by the Spirit. He was led by the Spirit. He rejoiced in the Spirit. If Jesus needed the Holy Spirit, you need the Holy Spirit. If he needed prayer, you need prayer. If he needed to sing, you need to sing. If he could only accomplish the will of the Father for his life, by the power of the Holy Spirit, the same is true and the same is true for you and me. And what this is, this is literally at certain points, just stopping and saying, I don't have what I need to do what I am called to do. So I'm gonna stop and ask God to give me the power to live the life that he has called me to. I, I do this all the time. I literally will just raise my hand. It's my way of just inviting the Holy Spirit to come down and charge me up. The Bible calls this fillings in the spirit. And let me just say this, many of us are far kinder to our car and our phone than we are to our soul. Let me ask you, okay. How many of you right now know how much gas you've got in your car? You keep an eye on it. You're like, well, I don't wanna run out. I wanna make sure I have plenty of fuel. How many of you right now know how much battery power you have on your phone as you check the scores of the games? How many of you have no idea how your soul is doing. So what it is, it's stopping and saying, okay, how am I doing? Where is my soul? Have I connected to the Holy Spirit? Have I plugged into the Holy Spirit? Have I been recharged, refueled by the Holy Spirit? This is silence, solitude, prayer, time in worship, time in God's word, time in God's presence. And then God gives you the power to live the life that you cannot live by the power you do not have. And that's a supernatural life. And then the last, second to last category, because what happens is, as I'm saying this, you just see it on some of your face. You're like, ah, he's just trying to sell us Jesus. This is like infomercial for Jesus. I've done the condo timeshare pitch. We're gonna have to sign something when this is all over. I know how this works. I've heard about this stuff, but I'm not sure it's true. All right, who is doubting? James 5, 17 and 18. He's gonna use a guy named Elijah. Old Testament, was a man with a nature like ours. Here's what he's saying. Elijah's just a normal person, very normal. And he prayed fervently that it might not rain. If you're in Arizona, you're like, I'm not impressed. But it was a big deal. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again and heaven gave rain and the earth bore its fruit. Let me tell you the story of Elijah. His name means the Lord is my God. Elijah, he prophesied, preached, and a prophet is this. God speaks to them, then God speaks through them. That's a prophet. They receive a message, and then that message goes through them to the people. Usually it is to repent of sin. The people don't like the message, so they attack the messenger. They don't like the message, so they attack the messenger. Then the messenger has a choice to make. I'm going to change the message to please them, but displease him, or I will keep the message to please him, knowing that it will displease them. A prophetic calling is one of constant conflict, and that is you are saying something that is true, but is hated, okay? And so Elijah is preaching, he is prophesying during one of the darkest days in the history of God's people, the king was Ahab and his wife was Jezebel. Now, Ahab and Jezebel are not just people, there are spirits working through these people that work in every generation. Ahab is a man who wins at work and loses at home. He makes money, he has power, he rules the nation, he's very successful, 
but his wife is evil, demonic, broken, dangerous, and out of control. And what he does is he tolerates her. He leads everywhere, but at home. We know that Jezebel is not just a person, but a spirit, because Jezebel is mentioned again in the book of Revelation thousands of years later. And God writes to, or Jesus speaks to seven churches. And he says of one church, this I have against you, you tolerate that woman Jezebel. All you need to do for the Jezebel spirit to succeed and to take root and to cause harm and to attack the prophets is just tolerate. This is where today the Jezebel spirit runs all of American culture, media, platforms, and education. Because the primary message being preached in our culture is tolerance. And Jesus says, the Jezebel spirit wants tolerance. The Holy Spirit wants repentance. And so the prophet gets up and says, repent of your behavior. And then the counterfeit arises up, Jezebel, not with the Holy Spirit, but with a demonic spirit, the Jezebel spirit, and says, don't repent of your sin, tolerate it, and tolerate mine. She's very powerful, she's very seductive, she's very sexual, uh, she, she's, she's very significant, she's evil, she's demonic. The Jezebel spirit can manifest itself in a man or a woman, but in the case of Ahab and Jezebel, he's this cowardly, weak man who wins at work and loses at home, and then lets his wife take all of his money, power, and opportunity to do evil and to cause seduction and spiritual deception. This still happens all the time. These are the guys who show up at church and they wanna lead here, but they won't lead at home. Ministry starts at home. Leadership starts at home. What Ahab should do, he should get his wife some help. She's broken. He should introduce her to the Lord. She needs deliverance. He should tell her that she's wrong, but he's scared of her and he doesn't like conflict. And so as a result, he allows her to say and do whatever she pleases and he tolerates it. So then what God decides is, I'm not going to tolerate that. And I'm gonna send my prophet. And he's gonna preach not tolerance, but repentance. And so now Elijah has a very difficult job description. Ahab and Jezebel, they run a nation. They've got two major demonic religions, counterfeits. They've got Baal worship, which is the God, supposed to be a male deity for rain and prosperity. And Asherah, which is a female demonic religion for sexuality and sensuality and fertility. And so all you need for Baal and Astra is just men who want money and power and women who manipulate through sex and religion. And God tells Elijah, you go tell them all to repent. Elijah, he's a little nervous. It's like, uh, they have 450 prophets of Baal, 400 prophets of Astra, 850, let me see, and me. 850 to one. How many of you, if I told you right now, okay, you're gonna get in a fight, okay. Okay, what are my odds? 850 to one. <laughs> so Elijah, he's a little scared and he's hiding a little bit. He's like, oh, I'm not so sure. God sends ravens and angels to feed him. God will sustain you even when you're fearful and until he makes you courageous. So then the day comes, it's the big battle. It's the God against the false gods. It's the Holy Spirit against the demonic spirits. It's the kingdom of God versus the kingdom of this world. And it's the big showdown on Mount Carmel, 1 Kings 18. In this corner, we have the 850 false prophets. Everybody's going crazy. Yeah, our God's real. Our religion's gonna win. Our nation's gonna win. We all get to do whatever we want to do. And in this corner, Elijah. <laughs> they bring in the rocks, they create the altar, they put the wood on it, they put the bowl on it. And then the 850 prophets of Baal and Astra start calling down fire from heaven. 
They're doing everything. They already got their prayers. They got their magic. They went to Sedona. They got crystals. They went over to the tribe. They got the guys dancing and banging the stick on the ground, trying to invite the demons up from hell, which is what that is. And nothing happens. And what I love about Elijah, he's kind of salty with a controversial sense of humor. That's how you know who the prophet is. He makes a joke in the Hebrew and he says, man, you guys have been working all day trying to get your God to show up and show off. Maybe he can't make it today because he's constipated and he's stuck on the toilet. Just had the holiday cheese log, maybe. He's literally making fun of their God. And then the real God shows up. Fire comes down from heaven. Burns the sacrifice and the wood that was soaked in water and melts all the rocks, okay? There's no question who won this fight, okay? Now what Elijah decides is, we're gonna kill the 850 false prophets. See, we live in a day where if you preach repentance, people all of a sudden start to get very hurt. Oh my gosh, that's so judgy and that just feels wrong and you spanked my inner child and just, I don't feel like this is a safe space. He killed 850 false prophets. He killed them. And he never died. He's one of only two men in the Old Testament that God took directly to heaven. God sent a chariot. This is the first first class flight. Sends a chariot. Oh, for me, oh, nice. Where are we going? Up, oh. off he goes. Right into heaven, okay? Right into heaven. There's only two guys in the Bible that don't die, Enoch and Elijah. Some think in Revelation, when two witnesses come back and preach and then are martyred, it may be Enoch and Elijah for a farewell final tour before the second coming of the Lord Jesus, we'll see. For Jewish kids, he's a superhero. We've got Batman, Spider-Man, Wonder Woman, Wolverine, they got Elijah. They're, they're Elijah, boys are dressing up like Elijah. You know, give me some wood, give me some, give me some water. <laughs> Let's do this. He was a superhero to the Jewish kids. And what he says is, he was just like you. Because God does extraordinary work through ordinary people. God does perfect work through imperfect people. And you don't need to be a superhero, you just need to be surrendered. And what he keeps saying is pray and see if God shows up and shows off. Elijah actually showed up when Jesus was on the earth. On the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus reveals himself in glory. Here comes Moses and Elijah. Elijah comes down. Let me just say this friends, when we read the Bible, it's not about what God used to do, it's about what God always does. And it's not about people who are unlike us, but people who are a lot like us. So then the last thing that he has, last category seven, if you were gonna write a book of the Bible, how would you end it? What would you say? What would be your conclusion? I love this. Never forget to find the lost sheep. James 5, 19 to 20. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, there are people when COVID hit, they stopped going to church, they stopped reading their Bible, they stopped praying, they've wandered. There are whole churches and denominations that have wandered from the truth. They've got into wokeism and progressivism and they've chased a, uh, a social justice agenda rather than a spiritual agenda of the kingdom of God. There's a lot of wandering right now. Wandered from the truth and somebody brings them back, go get them. Let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Let me ask you this, have you been wandering? You're like I used to pray and not so much and I used to read my Bible, but not so much. And I used to go to church, but not so much. And you know, I, it's not that I don't believe in God, it's just that I don't hang out with him. Okay. You need to know that the heart of God toward you is the Father's heart. How many of you know somebody who's wandered? Somebody, the Holy Spirit brings somebody to mind. You're like, oh gosh, they've wandered, man. They're not on a good path. They have wandered. And what he says is, 
they may not be pursuing God, but you can be pursuing them and bringing them back. Hey, bought you a Bible. Hey, let's have coffee. Hey, we need to talk. Hey, come to church. Hey, it's Christmas. Everybody goes to church. Tis the season to stop wandering. Who in this season can you be praying for and pursuing and inviting back into relationship with the Lord Jesus? I'm gonna invite the band up at this time. We're gonna spend some time singing and celebrating. He says, is any of you cheerful? I hope you're cheerful today. You're like, but Pastor Mark, um, I'm suffering. Well, you can pray. Uh, but more, Pastor Mark, I'm sick. Well, we'll pray for you right now. But Pastor Mark, I've been in sin. Well, you know what? God's here to forgive you and to liberate you and to deliver you. But Pastor Mark, I'm weary. Great, then invite the Holy Spirit to come and empower you. But Pastor Mark, I'm doubting. Great, then remind yourself that even when we are faithless, he is faithful. And Pastor Mark, I've been wandering. Well, the good news is this. There's a story in the Bible just for you. It's the story of the prodigal. There's somebody who totally wandered. They turned around and the father ran to them and embraced them and forgave them and blessed them and threw a party for them. And that's why we're here. We're here right now to celebrate the goodness of God. I'm gonna invite you to stand. If you need prayer for anything, go to the back. Father God, thank you so much that we can pray and we can sing and we can sing and we can pray. And God, it seems like whatever our problem is, singing and praying makes us better, even if it doesn't make it better. And so we come now to pray. We come now to sing in the strong name of Jesus who makes us cheerful. Amen. We hope you enjoyed today's sermon. If you want to be a part of getting more Bible teaching out across the world, visit realfaith.com slash donate. And for more content like this, visit realfaith.com. Thanks for listening. And remember, it's all about Jesus.